welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its companion foundation. On today's podcast, I'm delighted to be sitting down with the founder and director of the Digital Transgender Archive to discuss his important work cataloging trans-related historical materials. KJ is the Associate Professor of English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, co-director of the NU Lab for Texts, Maps, and Networks at Northeastern University. KJ Rawson works at the intersection of the digital humanities and rhetoric, LGBTQ+, and feminist studies. Focusing on archives as key sites of cultural power, he studies the rhetorical work of queer and transgender archival collections in brick and mortar and digital spaces. Rawson is the founder and director of the Digital Transgender Archive, an award-winning collection of trans-related historical materials, and he chairs the editorial board of Homosaurus, an LGBTQ plus linked data vocabulary. KJ, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So please tell us a little bit more about the origin of the Digital Transgender Archive. The DTA actually started for me as a response to a problem or a set of problems, I suppose. So I was trying to conduct research as a graduate student and trying to find significantly sized collections of trans historical materials. And I faced a a lot of barriers in doing that. So it seemed like it would be straightforward enough to find these archival collections, but it was actually quite challenging. And so once I really spoke to other researchers and archivists and learned that this wasn't just a me problem, but it was a problem that is inherent to conducting research in trans history, I started to dream up some ways that I might be able to address that. So a digital collection seemed like a good option. I initially thought it would just be a collection of finding aids, so information about archival collections elsewhere, but I realized that wouldn't actually improve most of the accessibility of trans history. And so bit by bit, I started to work through all of the challenges inherent to building a digital archive and realized that it was something that I could do uh, that was possible. And so I started to develop the project with that goal in mind to really respond to the challenges of conducting research in trans history and to make these histories far more accessible. Thank you so much. What have been some of the surprising stories that you've encountered along the way? Gosh, there are so many stories that have surprised me. I mean, part of the stories, you know, have come out through the historical materials themselves. So just hearing about you know, for example, some of the uh, cross-gender performances from the early part of the 20th century that just seem in, in many ways very far removed from the sort of drag scene that we have now that is quite specific to, often specific to queer cultures. But the idea of, you know, seeing these these performers who were impersonating men and impersonating women, and that was the entire shtick of, of the performance is in and learning more about who these individuals were is, is something that I've been digging into a lot lately. Um, but I think perhaps more surprising has been 
I'm connecting with some of the folks whose materials are represented in the collection and even family members of people who are in, in the DTA. And so in some cases, I've connected with families who were initially very resistant and concerned about having their loved one's materials be on the site. They didn't want them to be outed. They didn't want the kind of attention that might come from being on a public website and an open database. And um, in one case, over the past uh, four or five years, we've maintained an ongoing conversation where the family is now uh, working on a on a, on a biography of their loved one because wow. they have really turned around and, and become far more proud and understanding of how influential their family member was. And so those are the kinds of things that I am always surprised and delighted by uh, to see those kinds of outcomes from the project. For our listeners that haven't had the opportunity to visit the website yet, could you give us a little better breakdown of the scope of the project, what years are covered, what locations are covered, things like that? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so if people are interested in visiting the site, they can go to digitaltransgenderarchive.net. We also have lots of other similar URLs. So if you get it wrong, it'll probably um, <laughs> direct you to the correct site. What we have up right now in our collections are more than 10,000 digital items, which are digitized versions, uh, for the most part, of physical items. So you'll find lots of photographs, old newspaper clippings, newsletters, magazines, uh, images of ephemera, some images of things like clothing or buttons, so like physical objects. Um, our collections actually date back to the 16th century, but the early materials are really outliers. So most of our collections are from the 20th century. And I would say that really our focus is on pre-1990s history. Um, and part of the reason for that is because once the internet became more widely available, the cultural production shifts a lot at that point. Um, and also access to history starts to shift a lot. And in, interestingly, it's, it's around the same time that the term transgender starts to gain widespread circulation in the US and Canadian contexts. And so for us, we try to really focus our, our attentions and resources pre-1990, though our official cutoff is 2000 in order to capture the histories that are harder to find and that in many cases you need to travel to an archive to be able to locate and, and read, which is a huge barrier for, for many researchers. So we try to focus on those uh, physical artifacts and digitizing those and providing access to those collections. We also have a collection of discovery resources, which is another way of saying um, information about archival holdings that are not yet digitized. And this is really important because, of course, what we have on the site is just a small little taste of what's out there. And there's so many incredible resources out there. But because of various reasons, we can only provide limited access uh, to those those resources. And so we have a collection of finding aids to support researchers who are able to travel to archives so that they can continue their research and do more extensive and in-depth research. Wow. I mean, I'm amazed by how comprehensive this database is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because we don't actually maintain any physical collections ourselves. So the Digital Trans Archive really is just a digital collaboration clearinghouse. So all of our items that are on the site have been contributed by more than 70 different archival partners. 
And we've worked with folks from um, nine different countries. So there's all kinds of sites that have contributed materials. But I will say that the vast majority of our collections document US and Canadian history. And you know, there's lots of reasons for that, but in part because the framework of the project and also the fact that it's in English really um, has led us to focus on archives and collections that are uh, based in the US and Canada. And it's my understanding that our bar association is lucky enough to be one of those collaborating partners to have a few items in the collection as well. Yeah, so we were actually really excited to come across um, some of the early newsletters um, from your bar association. And they're a really great resource to synthesize what is happening in the legal landscape for decades. Um, and so being able to, in particular, look to those resources as we think about translegal history, you know, it's the kind of resource that will get greatly used in our collections that people will be um, very happy to see. You can, I can already imagine how many different research papers can make use of resources like that. And so um, we're in the process of starting to digitize uh, clippings from, from the, that newsletter and try to make those available in our database. Well, thank you for highlighting our work. We're very proud of the everything we've done with the Law Notes newsletter over the last several decades. And we're very proud to be one of the oldest and largest LGBTQ plus bar associations in the country as well. Yeah, it's great. It's going to be a really great collection. You know, there's such a strong overlap between an interest in history and an interest in the law. We joke in law school even that everyone is either there because they were a history major or a political science major. So I know a lot of our listeners are really going to be interested in possibly not only looking at these materials, but using them in their own subsequent legal writings. Could you tell us a little bit about if there are particular pieces that are helpful for attorneys or law students researching their own briefs or articles, how they can get in touch with their organization to be able to properly use those materials? Sure. I mean, I would say that the majority of use will be open and available to people who are interested in working with items from the collections. One of the things that really strikes me is the issue of precedent and, you know, it both what's happening right now at the legislative level, which I'm more familiar with in the political sphere, but also I assume in the legal sphere, so much of the legislation and the arguments that are being made publicly against trans people invoke misconceptions about trans history and say like, there is no precedent for this. You know, this is a new phenomenon. This is uh, something that we have to, you know, create these, these bills or these laws to protect people from. But it's actually a complete misrepresentation and misunderstanding. Sometimes it seems willful <laughs> of history because we actually can see even from the Digital Trans Archive, which again is just an initial glimpse and foray into trans history, that there is incredible precedent for trans people and trans communities, even before that identity and that name as a banner was co cohering this, these groups of people. And so, I think that lots of resources on the site could be helpful to people who are trying to make arguments in that direction. And for the most part, if there are citations of our content, that is 
totally fine. It's helpful um, when people um, cite where they received it, the information from, because then it um, encourages more people to know about the DTA as a resource. But if it's more extensive use of an item, we usually try to put researchers in contact with the contributing archive because oftentimes there are more materials that either aren't you know, reflected in the DTA or might not be found by the researcher. And so we always want to connect archivists with researchers to get, again, facilitate that, that deeper research and make sure that the researchers are getting the permissions that they need uh, for whatever use they have. But in most cases, what you see is what you get. And so um, there's actually a statement at the bottom of each item that explains what restrictions there might be for using that particular item. Sounds very accessible. That's the hope. The legislative attacks we've seen this year, hundreds, literally hundreds, historic level of attack against transgender community, particularly our youth. Even if you're not looking at the items on the archive from a legal or historical lens, I will say, just personally speaking, it, it feels like a warm hug to go in and to see all of these stories of the elders and just to be reminded when you're kind of sometimes stuck in that Twitter echo chamber of hearing all of these inaccurate, like you said, and invalidating things to know that this is not experimental, this is not a trend, this is not new. So I, if, if for no other reason that you're just having a bad day, I would say it's worth checking out the archives, even if it's not specific to your area of practice. I appreciate that. And in fact, that's some of the best feedback that we receive. I mean, it's always nice to see the project cited here or there or credited in this way or that. But honestly, I take the most pride in those emails that come from individual users who just say, I just wanted to read about people like me. And it was extremely validating. And it gave me so much hope to be able to, you know, find out that someone just like me had lived 300 years ago and I got to read some, some of their stories. And I got to, you know, read some correspondence from important people that I've heard about or read about in trans history. And I get to have this sneak peek into their more private life. So I think that those connections with history can be so deeply meaningful for people. And I often think of um, scholar Hill Malatino's description of using trans history as, um, as really uh, turning to it as resources for resilience. And I just think that's a, a beautiful way of describing what you know these treasure troves of trans history can offer folks. Again, even if it's not for any particular research purpose, but it can be just to support trans people in our everyday resilience. There's a really large section in the archive about attacks on cross-dressing or wearing an excessive number of articles that doesn't quote unquote match your sex assigned at birth. For some of our listeners out there who might be on the younger end or newer to finding themselves in the community, can you tell us a little bit more about the historical framework there? Yes, and unfortunately, a lot of the documentations that we have, particularly the earlier that we go, are instances where people who are transgressing gender norms are confronting more powerful people or institutions often that are trying to surveillance their behaviors or making, for example, um, there's lots of examples in uh, newspapers where people have been arrested for violating cross-dressing laws. And cross-dressing laws, um, I think of in particular Claire Sears' work, 
who has written extensively about um, cross-dressing legislation, and I think with a particular focus in, on California and San Francisco, but um, does a great job of talking about all kinds of cross-dressing laws. Um, were often done by specific municipalities, and the way that they were executed was wildly divergent. And I think it would depend um, not just year to year, but month to month. And and so there was a lot of unpredictability in the in the legal landscape and also in the ways that individuals were able to express themselves. And so we can see in the historical record that, of course, the, the ways that people's intersecting identities, so if an individual is a person of color who's transgressing gender norms, they're going to, documentations of their lives are more often going to come up, particularly as we get, you know, pre-1950s, right? as they are interfacing with police, interfacing with the courts, interfacing you know, in these spaces where the documentations are not positive, they are not celebrating a life, they are in fact um, doing the opposite of that. And so it's been an interesting challenge for us as a project to think through how to frame these documentations, particularly when we don't have counter narratives to really provide varying perspectives. Um, and that, can be really difficult because there are significant gaps in what we have documentations of with respect to the historical record for people who have transgressed gender norms. The municipal piece is especially interesting because I think sometimes there's the hyper focus on if I'm not litigating at the Supreme Court, then I'm not really involved in the movement and that's the only place to make change. But, you know, it's easy to forget how much of our every day-to-day -day lives are really impacted by these city, county, and state laws. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about the examples, because you said that these varied wildly, which makes sense being so hyper-local. Could you give us a few stories about what some of these laws entailed? Yeah, so some of the most famous ones um, involved a number of items that you would have to have on your person that were gendered articles of clothing. And often this was the number, the magic number seemed to be three, but it did depend on the location. Um, and what that meant is that if you were identified uh, by a police officer as potentially violating the proper dress attire um, laws, then you would have to demonstrate that you were wearing at least three properly gendered articles of clothing. And so it really encouraged this level of scrutiny where it was so specific and of course, like, you know, queer and trans communities, and, and again, I'm sort of using that as a placeholder because, you know, in many cases, these terms were not operating, but folks who were transgressing gender norms were very creative and resilient and were kind of passing knowledge between each other to figure out how to make sure that they were staying on the right side of the law. Because of course, once you're arrested, your name is often published publicly in newspapers and there were very significant, both social, economic, and legal ramifications for that kind of you know, violation of the law. And I think you're really right to point out how much local municipalities and local ordinances and codes and, and that sort of level of enforcement for gender norms really impacts people's day-to-day -day lives as opposed to just the Supreme Court rulings and so forth. And I also think there's a sense that like those are the things that can be changed. 
and there's like a frustration of, um, you know, this is happening within our own communities, whereas often, you know, things that are happening at the national level, it seems so far removed from people's everyday lives. So there is a lot of agitation that has certainly happened at that level. Again, I don't think we have nearly enough documentations of, of any of these histories to be able to say as much as I want to say, or I hope to say, or know that could be said about these histories. But often there was so much shame involved and so much you know, strategic secrecy that maintaining documentations and records would actually run counter to the safety and security that people needed to foster to navigate these hostile environments. So I think it's really interesting to think about now, you know, 75 to 100 years later, like what individuals in history were trying to navigate as they were, um, you know, intentionally not creating documentations of their lives. So we still see the impact of that historical trauma working with LGBTQ plus clients, regardless of the area of law, right? When you're doing an intake and you get kind of that pushback of, why are you asking me all of these questions? I don't want to be put on a list. Is this going to be put on a list? You know, there's always that that phrase just keep coming back again and again and again. Yeah, I think that, you know, queer and trans communities are extremely cautious and skeptical of interfacing with the state and state actors. And, you know, there's a long history of reasons for that. And I think that, you know, often that is a very prudent approach to, you know, thinking about how your your safety and security might be compromised depending on who you're interfacing with. And new reasons are still being added all the time. I don't want to suggest that that chapter is somehow behind us. Yeah, precisely. What lessons would you like to see applied as we go forward and the attacks are becoming sharper on limiting who, who can transition and how they can transition and when they can transition. I think the Digital Trans Archive offers a really great resource for people who are willing to be educated about trans communities. And, you know, for example, I'm thinking about some of our correspondence collection where folks like Lou Sullivan are talking about how harmful it was to him to have the medical field restricting his transition and refusing to support surgery for him because he was a gay trans man. And so that was an unthinkable position for a trans person to be in um, for most of the 20th century, because the conception from the medical field was that you would transition in order to become a more normal heterosexual. So it was a, an approach to transsexuality that was just steeped in heteronormativity and homophobia, right? So the expectation was that, you know, if you are a person who is assigned female at birth and you're transitioning to male, that of course you would then partner with a woman so that you could be a proper heterosexual. So the gender clinics wouldn't work with Lou because they did not perceive that he would be uh, successfully integrated into, into society because he would be a gay trans man. And so, you know, that's a good example of really, you can dig into stories like Lou's and, you know, the generosity of his sharing so freely of his story, you can get a sense of, of how painful that was and how impactful for, that was for him personally. 
And I do believe that people learn a tremendous amount from those kinds of stories and from seeing that, you know, in many ways, this fight isn't anything new. It's just taking a new focus. And unfortunately, that focus is some of the most vulnerable members of our community, and that's trans and non-binary youth. And so, you know, my interest as a, as a professor, as a person directing this project is always to push for education and really try to support, you know, improved understandings of trans people and trans communities through this as a resource. And I think that sometimes historical materials can help to deflect some of that questioning from living trans folks. Because as a trans person myself, I can say that it does get kind of tiring to have to do all of that work yourself all the time and to use your own story and your own experiences and to, to expose yourself for others. But we do have these tremendous historical figures that have been doing this work and have done that work and have offered us all of these resources. And so it's, I hope, one contribution to the many ways that folks are working on these issues right now. But I think that so much improvement stands to be gained by people just getting educated and understanding that, you know, trans issues are, are not something new. They are, you know, su providing supportive medical care is a basic human right and is a need. And it is a way of, of supporting and valuing trans lives. So I, I just think that there's so much to be gained by having people interface with the past and providing an opportunity for them to learn. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners in the audience, our cisgender listeners in the audience, regardless of sexual orientation, what would be like your top five must starting point reads for materials on the website to educate themselves to kind of, like you said, take the burden off their friends, family member, and colleagues to always have to be the one to educate and advocate. Oh, that's such a hard question to ask someone who loves uh, archival collections so much. Um, I'm thinking of your listeners in particular, and one collection that comes to mind is a group of newsletters that were published in upstate New York, uh, mostly around the Albany area, and they were published um, late 1980s, early 1990s, but they are a really interesting sort of way of dropping into a moment in history and seeing what kind of organizing was happening. And they're, of course, covering all kinds of, of topics at the time, but also really showing the ways that community was building and how people were like connecting and forming. So I always um, recommend that as a, as a nice collection. I think that, you know, one of the things that people like to see is just pictures of people. There's lots of great photograph collections on the DTA. And some of them are old postcards. Some of them are personal photographs that individuals have just taken throughout their lives. And those can be some of the more intimate items in the collection. Some of them are paired with um, personal correspondence as well. So you can see some of the back and forth that was written between individuals and really get an on the ground glimpse of the kinds of issues that people have been wrangling with um, and the ways that they were sorting out for themselves uh, how to define the term transgender or what are the boundaries of trans communities and how are transsexuals different from transvestites and and really kind of sorting through the different categories of identity as they were being made uh, and so uh, some of my favorite items from the collection relate to that in part because i'm a scholar of rhetoric and so i'm, I'm drawn to the the moments of of language development 
but I think that, you know, it really just depends on what people are interested in. Um, but I think searching by genre can be a really nice way of just browsing around and um, jumping right into the middle of the collections rather than trying to type in search terms that might lead people to somewhat random items. We try to build, we tried to build in a lot of browse options so that folks who came to the site who had no idea what they were looking for could just poke around. And we get routine feedback that the map feature is something that lots of users are drawn to right away. So you can search by an interactive map that's tagged with the locations that an item is about. So it's not necessarily where it was created, but whenever an item is focused on a particular thing, or for example, you know, we have some photographs of, of folks who are traveling around the country. And so you can see the different places where they traveled because it's tagged on this map. And so um, that's a really nice way of just kind of exploring by location. The map is a lot of fun and there are hundreds of items just in the New York City area alone. Yeah, it's unsurprising perhaps that New York City is a, a hub of activity and we have lots of items there. And we have quite a few collaborators that are in New York City and we have hundreds more items that are on the docket to be processed and made available that really to New York. I'm wondering if you might have a few minutes to share with us your thoughts on kind of the legal language and its evolution with the LGBTQ plus community in recording a rapid response podcast about the 303 Creative LLC Supreme Court case, we were talking about how lawyers use a completely different set of language when describing the LGBTQ plus community than people within the community themselves, right? And a couple examples that immediately come to mind is somehow bisexual never gets mentioned, non-binary never gets mentioned, and this legal term of art seems to have developed over the years to always say transgender status. And, and, and again, and they, yep, that's always the look that clients give me is how, how did they come up with that? I have never described myself that way. I don't know anyone who from the community who has described themselves that way, but transgender status has somehow become the soup du jour phrase in all of these cases involving gender identity. So can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts around how language develops and perhaps this is related to not having enough trans attorneys, period. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look back throughout history to see that language, of course, isn't developing just within communities and then being absorbed upwards or just being created by more powerful institutions and being distributed downwards, right? Um, what I've found with trans community language is that it's actually often this really complex interplay of community language practices and evolution and then the way that that then gets absorbed by institutions and the way that institutions then, you know, provide language that is applied onto trans and non-binary communities. And, and there's a back and forth. It's really a dialectic um, as opposed to any unilateral, unidirectional um, movement of language. And I think that's a pretty interesting way to think about it because you know often we assume that institutions have all of this power, right? But in doing so, there can be a, a weird absolving of responsibility or, or abdication of activism, right? Because you're like, oh, you know, we can't possibly change that. But as you point to, if we had more trans and non-binary lawyers, those folks are actually going to go out and be able to change that, right? But I also think that, you know, with in some cases, there's opportunities for community feedback. There's, you know, solicitations for 
legislation, for example, to provide you know feedback from, from the public. And I think that those are often missed opportunities for people to jump in and say like, no, here's actually the language that we use. Now, of course, the danger with that is that that language sometimes then gets appropriated and misused and used against communities, right? And this is why I think queer and trans communities have been historically resistant to working with more powerful institutions because, you know, we've been burned so often in the past. But I think that especially as our landscape continues to shift and more queer and trans and non-binary folks are able to move into these positions and sort of work for change from the inside out, there's a lot of opportunity and possibility there. And, you know, I think that even when we see phrases and terms like sticking and repeating and coming to prominence in a particular sphere, I still think there's so much opportunity for change and for pushback. Um, and again, I, I see, I have limited knowledge of the legal sphere, but given how quickly a phrase or a word can catch on, I think that also demonstrates how quickly it can change because all it's gonna take is a few well-placed interventions that can then redirect the way that that legal discourse is developing. And I think that that gives folks a lot of opportunity for, for intervention and jumping into that fray. Because, you know, in many cases, it's institutions describing others who are less powerful and who are being acted upon, right, who are subject to the law, who are not being able to, um, to author and create. So I think that, you know, continuing to move that needle to provide more and more opportunities to author their, our own stories and to um, be able to articulate our, our needs and our, our rights in our own language is just so important. But it's a struggle that's always happened for queer and trans communities. So we are uh, continuing a rich and important legacy in that sense. That's very uplifting to remind everyone that because, and again, transgender status is really the phrase that has stuck in the legal writings, but we really don't tend to see in the legislative draftings. So that's really a, a hopeful and uplifting reminder to know that just that this phrase came in, we can usher that phrase right back out. Yeah, and there's so many examples of that throughout trans history. And even uh, you can see that, like, for example, um, the medical field, they try on language all the time. <laughs> They're like, let's see if this sticks. Oh, no, no, that doesn't go anywhere. And no one else seems to publish about that. And then the same thing is happening within trans communities. Virginia Prince, who was a, a very well-known uh, figure in, in trans history in the second half of the 20th century, she created, I mean, no less than 15 to 20 terms that she was trying to get stick. I mean, she's often credited for coining the word transgender, and she certainly had a, a strong hand in its popularization, but it wasn't quite coined by her. You know, it's, it's more complicated than that, right? Uh, I, I rarely would ascribe a, a single term in queer and trans community language circles to a single person, right? It's it's often far more dynamic in the way that language evolves and emerges, but we can definitely point to particular people and the ways that they have shaped that landscape. And so I think that, again, gives us a lovely and inspiring template for what we can then do and how we can shape discourse moving forward. What role do you see the legal profession playing in not only shaping that discourse, but preserving and telling transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming history? I think that the legal sphere has 
so much opportunity to really lead the way for pioneering the stories that will get told in the future, right? So the ability to, to narrate in a way that then gets codified and set into law and set into, into practice so that others then look back on that and follow that example and follow that precedent, I think is so incredible and so, so much power. It's just a tremendous amount of power. And I, I think that lots of folks don't have anywhere near that kind of access. And so there's a way that the legal field can really situate itself as future oriented and as being able to to set the course of trans human rights for decades based on what is happening right now. And I think that it's easy to like look around and see all of the horrible things that are happening and get stuck into that and just think about putting out fires rather than you know building new pathways forward. But I think that you know we have to do both at the same time, right? We have to be addressing the negativity certainly and responding to all of this um, anti-trans stuff that's coming up, but at the same time, we have to be building trans futures that we are excited about and that we are wanting to pursue because we can't let other people author our stories for us. And I think that that's one of the best lessons that trans history has taught us. It is exhausting. I've, I've spoken with attorneys across different generations in different roles in the movement. And it's just, it's exhausting to be putting out these fires all the time and then still trying to imagine and, and plan for and strategize around a future. Right. And I think in our, you know, our more pessimistic moments, we can recognize that as a strategy, right? Um, you know, trans people cannot continue to gain more human rights if we are solely focused on making sure our current rights aren't stripped away, right? It's, um, you know, it's a, a moment where it seems like we're having to play defense in a highly public, very active moment to moment way. When, you know, for many decades, we were far more under the radar, you know, and we were having to, to fight, of course, but often in different ways, right? It felt more local, it felt more personal, maybe it felt more like, these larger systems that weren't really thinking about trans folks, but that were being taken out on trans people, right? Now it feels like the landscape is actually directing itself towards trans folks, right? And that there are actors who are seeking to harm trans people. And that feels quite different. And I think that, you know, it's tiring. <laughs> we see it, we get it on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's hard to even keep track of how much anti-trans legislation uh, and, and policy is happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think, unfortunately, that's part of the strategy. But I also think that that should, you know, em empower us and give us more energy to try to not just respond, but to build and to grow. I always try to be optimistic. <laughs> we need that. We need that. Lawyers are a pessimistic bunch by nature. <laughs> It's hard. I mean, I'm not sure that uh, archivists or historians are uh, naturally optimistic either, but I just think that, you know, in our current landscape, we have to be, you know, we have to sort of support each other and support the work that's happening across all of these different spheres, um, because we do share a, a baseline commitment to trans people um, and really supporting the development of, of a better 
world and better environment for trans thriving. So if people and money and resources were no object, where would you like to see the archives push into in the next couple of years? Well, at the moment, we actually are enjoying the benefit of a, of a great influx of resources because we received a major grant and we're focusing our efforts for the next three years on a project that is digitizing trans BIPOC histories. And so we're really devoting all of our energies as a project um, to not just digitizing um, trans BIPOC related materials, but also trying to think through the sort of ethical complexities of um, documentation, how to respond to archival absences, how we narrate these stories, the kinds of um, metadata and information that we provide about content. And so we're taking this as a really good opportunity um, to kind of rework some of the baseline parameters of the project as we are also providing greater access to these histories that are um, admittedly harder to find um, and underdocumented. So that's what we're working on right now. So at the moment, it's hard to even imagine more resources. But um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this project is that often people come to our website and think, oh, you have this, this great big team behind you. And to some extent, that's true. But to a large extent, it's not. Uh, this is a faculty project. So I, you know, I, I also teach. I advise students. I do all the work of a faculty member. And this is um, my research project. And it's one of several. Uh, so it's a it's a big and large project, but it's also, um, you know, only a, a small part of my time. Uh, we do have graduate students and undergraduates who get the chance to work on the project. Um, any given semester, we have 10 to 15 students who are processing items. So everything you see on the site is there because of students. So it's this really great opportunity for students to be able to like jump in and to get some experience and to interface with history and ask some of these big questions. But the thing that we always um, would love to have is full-time staff, right? It would be lovely to have an archivist on staff who could uh, support this work. Um, it would be great to have an educational outreach coordinator who could be putting together more lesson plans, who could be supporting teachers who are using this work, uh, who, who could be you know, supporting lawyers who are trying to create narratives from this work. So I think you know, there's always a long wish list of things that we would love to have for the project. But you know, right now I certainly have my hands full. <laughs> but it's uh, it's always great to see how many people want to get involved, and there's there's never any shortage of uh, materials or of students who want to jump in and get experience with the project. Well, that's really exciting to hear. Yeah, it's not just me over here. <laughs> Oh, we certainly can't do it alone. I know people think that our bar association has a much larger staff than we do. So. <laughs> well, that's good, right? It's the illusion, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you said, it's the army of students and volunteers that really keep everything running. So thank yeah. goodness for them. If we have more seasoned attorneys in the audience that might be sitting on something in their attic that would be of interest to the collection, what is the best way for them to get in touch with the DTA? Yeah, thank you for that question. I always like to make a plug for how important these histories are, and often people don't even have a clear sense of what they may be sitting on that has value for other folks and for researchers. Um, so if anyone thinks that they may have some materials that could be interesting or um, that they know someone who does, they can just reach out to me. 
one of the ways you can do that is through the, the DTA's website. We have a contact us page and that comes directly to me. You can also reach out to me from my faculty email, which is k.rawson, R-A-W-S-O-N, at northeastern.edu. So either of those ways is fine. Um, since we are not a collecting archive, I often put people in touch with archives that do collect physical materials. And so in many cases, we will digitize content and then help to help a donor to place it into a physical archive where it can be kept and made available forever, you know, for the foreseeable future. In other cases, we do accept materials and digitize them and then send them back. So if people aren't ready to uh, let go of their materials or just want to make some things temporarily available, we can do that. Um, lots of folks are also just send us digitized content because they uh, have the means to do so now. It's a lot easier now to make scans. And so we're happy to work with folks wherever they're at and have conversations about what might be valuable, what other researchers might want to take a look at, and where a good home for that might be. Are death certificates ever of any interest? Because I know there, New York is one state that's an example that has recently amended the regulations to be able to correct death certificates to make sure that people who were previously misgendered upon their death are no longer misgendered after death. Is that a type of material that would help fill in some of that, those holes that if there were attorneys that were working with folks to help family members correct death certificates and they were willing to share those death certificates, would that be something of interest? Oh, potentially, yeah. We, I don't think we have a single death certificate on the DTA, to my knowledge. Every time I say that, I'll then go and do a search and be corrected. But in this case, I'm feeling fairly confident that we don't have any death certificates in the collection. And... It would definitely be one of those kinds of objects for me that we'd have to think about a little in terms of like privacy and not necessarily legality because it's a public document, but thinking about, you know, the impact it might have on someone's memory, um, the circulation of that kind of item. You know, it's interesting, often some of the materials we have in our collections are already available elsewhere publicly. So the question is not necessarily one of, of copyright or um, rights for making something available, but the ways that we are rendering it within our context and the impacts that that can have on people. Um, mm -hmm. So in some cases, we might see items that are from folks who were trans and who may have identified as trans, but were not out. And we have to make really thoughtful decisions about how to then include materials on the site or, or not, um, or whether we might actually redact some items. And in many cases, we have redacted um, personal or private information to still make part of the item available, but to also protect um, the subjects of the, the resources. That makes sense. But I mean, I think that there's lots of different resources that listeners to this podcast might come across that could be useful. I mean, even, um, you know, some of the things we have on our site are actually related to Phyllis Fry, who some of your listeners may know, is a, um, a renowned trans lawyer. And uh, she and I connected early on in the project, and she donated a whole bunch of her personal materials. Um, so it includes things like legal conference proceedings. <laughs> so, you know, and important gatherings where uh, people were discussing trans-related rights from the 1990s are now available on the site and those uh, are actually quite quite heavily used so you know people may think oh that was that obscure thing that we did and there was only 30 of us there but that could actually be a really important moment in history that wasn't 
necessarily all that long ago, but is still um, a, a key part of the story that we're trying to help tell. Um, because, you know, and I will admit to doing this too, so often the people who are out there doing this work and who are activists and who are trying to shape the world are not always very good at keeping their own records or recognizing how what they're doing is creating history. <laughs> and so I think that uh, that probably applies to many of your listeners. And so just recognizing that some of these activities that may seem mundane or everyday are actually valuable for the historical record and are worth preserving. Um, and I think that's especially true for queer and trans folks um, who uh, often undervalue the contributions that we are making. Yeah, I mean, even when I've asked some of our founding members or that generation of just like, I just want to see old photos from Pride, right? And they're like, oh no, why, why is that interesting? You don't need that. I'm like, no, yes, this is all important. Absolutely. So it sounds like there might be some lavender law programs out there that people need to be sharing with KJ. Yes, absolutely. And making sure that it has a permanent archival home too, because that's the other thing. Like so often these materials are precarious. They're stored in our attics or our garages or other places where uh, documents don't like to be stored for long periods of time. So um, it's really good to connect with an archives that can help steward these materials. And there are so many out there. Uh, it's just staggering to me now how easy it is to find homes for queer and trans resources, where even 10 years ago, um, it took a lot more convincing. Hmm. Well, any final stories that you'd like to share with our listeners today or any uh, call to action? There's nothing in particular I can think of. I mean, I hope that folks find some resources on the site that it um, you know, provides uh, support for their efforts and uh, support for people as individuals. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's always um, an uplifting thing for me to connect with organizations like yours and to, to know that there's these really important groups of people who are trying to actually do the work on the ground. And I think that the more that we can support each other by providing resources, by, you know, raising awareness, by educating, you know, in your case, by legislating and by, you know, helping to create laws, like this is all so important work. And I just, you know, I, I'm heartened by the fact that we're all in it together. And the work is far from over. I think sometimes we get a little overly protected in the New York City bubble, but and again, we have nothing to complain about compared to some more sibling states. I'll be first to admit that. However, the work is not yet done. So thank you for the work that you're doing as well. And I look forward to finding ways that our members and our organization can continue to collaborate with the DTA. For our listeners that might not have caught the address for the website, if you'd like to visit the Digital Transgender Archive, please go to www.digitaltransgenderarchive.net. Great. Hey, thank hey. you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks a lot.